about the noise issues and uh, the involvement with the place, the venues, I was actually yesterday uh, at uh, near, it's a very small venue mm -hmm. in Chester and there's the, the venue but there's residents all around mm -hmm. and it's part of a big listed area. Uh, but the venue knows they are very noisy. Mm -hmm. So what they've done for the residents, they obviously people know perfectly that the the venue can be audible and can be very, well, not annoying, but um, can be disturbing sometimes. So what the venue has done is they give them free tickets whenever mm -hmm. they want and are very welcome to come mm -hmm. and they get discounts and drinks and stuff. Mm -hmm. So that kind of creates a good relationship yeah, between like, the yeah. residents. Great idea to kind of engage with your immediate local community and, you know, uh, then you've, you've got a bunch of supporters as opposed to a bunch of people who are going to complain. Yeah. Mm. Well, there's sometimes, you know, there's a... It, it really shows that when you put some... I don't want to get too technical, but obviously when you build a place, you don't want the residents to be disturbed or mm. their health mm. to be affected, so you don't want any events to be all uh, heard. Mm. But then, obviously, there's a trade-off to this sometimes, and uh, if you... The residents will probably not mind hearing it mm. sometimes mm. if they get freebies yeah yeah so but you know and i do i hear your point about you know of course you know in an ideal world all residential property would be entirely insulated from any extraneous noise i live in walthamstow i hear police helicopters in the middle of the night not every night but quite a lot and that's just what you just accept that that's part of living in a city i think I, yeah. I just think if you move into a city centre near to a venue, you you should expect to get noise. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And you're about to get a new venue as well, aren't you, John? You've got the uh, oh, we are the Wolf of Stoke Canada. Yeah. It's just come off our theatres at risk list. Mm. Uh, we we uh, announced our list uh, just at the beginning of this month, beginning of February. And it was one of three that we are really pleased we've been able to take off the list. Great. Um, and it's going to open, I think, is it later this year or...? Uh, oh, later this year, beginning of next year, yeah. they're doing a soft opening. So, I walk past yeah. it every day on my commute to, to the office. Um, so, and I try and kind of look over the wall to see what's happening. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's looking, it's looking good. But it's great. But picking up on that point about kind of um, having theatres nearby residences as well, I think it's the other thing is the benefit that the theatre can bring to that place and yeah. really enliven it and make a really vibrant place for someone to live in. And taking Walthamstow as, as that example, when the council first decided to get involved in that project, they undertook an economic impact assessment mm -hmm. just to find out the value that the theatre would give back to the place. And yeah. at the time, they estimated it was between 34 to £52 million pounds to the economy over a 10-year period. And they've just done a new estimate. They've just run the figures again. Um, and they found that it's already having an impact, even though the venue's not open yet, just because it's going to happen. And their mm. new um, forecast is between, I think it's 41 to 60 odd million in a 10-year wow. period. And mm. yeah, it's 222 incredible. new jobs created yeah. and all sorts. So it really, mm. it makes such a ma major difference to place in mm. terms of visitor numbers footfall. I really like that. And um, I've something I've discovered, didn't know before, all the the economic impact and benefits of a place and there were some figures that you gave to uh, London Real mm -hmm. uh, about the for every pound spent in a West End theatre is 83 pounds spent in local businesses right. is that, right? yeah. is that yeah. the, the right terms mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I don't know how much uh, 
it takes to do that sort of well to get those sort of statistics mm -hmm. but they're so important to mm -hmm. understand mm -hmm. and again in Stratford because I live in, Stret in Stratford there's there are all the social opportunities mm -hmm. of going there meeting new people Definitely. and then it just snowballs into mm. are we going to go there more uh, and uh, the whole gets it local businesses involved or not so before going mm. to the event we'll go to the cafe local cafe mm. Mm. and it's just it's, it's great that everything like this happens and it's great that we can do have those sorts of statistics and studies mm. uh, but I don't know how much uh, they take how long they take well yeah they, they take quite a bit of work it would be great to do more studies after the theatre has been built or, or refurbished. Mm. Mm. So that's the Walthamstow one is an example of them projecting what they expect, uh, you know, it will generate in terms of additional spend in the area. Um, but Chester Story House, uh, which is a fantastic conversion of an old cinema, and it's now a theatre and a library combined, isn't it? Yeah, it's insane. Um, which is kind of yeah. an interesting interesting move, and mm. I think we might see more of that kind of thing, combined sort of facilities with, within one building. Um They've done they've done research post it reopening, and uh, I can't remember the figure, but a really impressive increase in footfall mm. in the town centre, di directly attributable to the theatre. Yeah, I think it's over fifteen percent. Fifteen percent, yeah. Increase so more people going into the town, yeah. spending money not just in the theatre but elsewhere. And I'm also mindful of um, Stockton Globe. It's not mm. just you know big venues in London, the Stockton Globe, uh, the local council have taken out a 100-year lease on that building and have put loads of money, millions of pounds, into refurbishing it. Um, and uh, uh, the leader of the council, who spoke at an event of ours a while ago now, said, "I we absolutely care about culture, but we particularly care about people coming into Stockton at night. We want to get more people into mm. Stockton, mm. Um, and, and, and the Globe is going to be how we do it. So, yeah, I think people don't always appreciate the wider impact that theatres have, even beyond the, the the people who attend, or especially beyond the people who attend. So um, DCMS, the, the, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, um, have recently done some research on uh, how people value their local theatre. And uh, they, re they interviewed or they, they've surveyed both attenders of that theatre and non-attenders. And the non-attenders also said it's really valuable. We want it. We would, we would have an extra X amount of pounds on top of our council tax to keep it there because we think it's important for our town being distinctive and a nice place to be. And, and so there's those wider impacts, I guess what people sometimes call placemaking, um, that goes just beyond... Um, uh, kind of cash value important mm -hmm. though that is but actual an emotional attachment people have to it yeah. uh um the way that theaters are a kind of um a hub like a social hub they're not just a cultural hub they're a social hub and increasingly you see theaters open all day doing all sorts of things you know knit and natter groups and you you name it there's a whole bunch of stuff that's not particularly theater but just it's a great space to to to, to, to gather together and yeah. reconnect as humans, especially post-COVID. Mm. What's the... Uh, I'm going to ask the question later, but uh, one note is there's probably going to be some noise in the recordings. If you hear that, uh, listen to the podcast, uh, we can hear 
construction noise and we'll try to edit it. But you can also hear rumbling noise from the tube that mm. comes very often, but mm. that's part of the city yep. and the bustling city. But yeah, yeah hopefully we'll yeah. try to minimize it. If you it. go to not every West End theatre, but there are certain ones where you will hear the, the underground during the show. Yeah. Um, it's just part of the deal. <laughs> so um, the question I was going to ask is, is there any cases, what's the percentage of success for uh, the renovation or a new theatre or a new performance space, public place, mm. uh, to be inserted into an area? Mm. Is there, is that, is that a guaranteed success? Or is there cases when there hasn't been that much success and they've, people have had to close the places, mm. the theatres? Mm. Um, I'd like to think there aren't that many cases of where they've had to close because they haven't uh, thought it through, partly because of our work. Um, uh, so, yes, I mean, there's there's all sorts of reasons why it might not work, you know, putting in a new theatre because you may not have really given enough thought to the demographics mm -hmm. uh, of that particular town or place or uh, mm -hmm. what other facilities are already there. And that's certainly what we take into account when we're advising. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's no point in building a fantastic new theatre you know, 100 yards away from another theatre that's doing very well, thank you, because they'll just cannibalise one another. Um, so we take all that into account when we're, when we're advising. But there are all sorts of other things that can go wrong. So we talked about working with developers, for instance. So it's not unusual, uh, particularly in London, uh, because of land values, for um, developers to be... to. Um, for the local authority to ask the developer to provide a cultural facility as part of a residential development or an office development. Um, it's through a, a thing called Section 106. It's basically a, a clause in planning that means the local authority can ask the developer to provide facilities as a kind of payoff for the disruption and the impact of their, their development. It doesn't have to be cultural. It could be, could be other things as well. Um, and so obviously that hits the bottom line for some developers. I'm not saying all developers are only about the bottom line, but it's often the case. Um, and so they will want to make the cultural facility as cheap and as small as they possibly can, hmm. which is where we come in. Yeah. Um, and we say, well, that ain't, that ain't going to work. Hmm. That, that's not a theatre, that's a box. Um, to make this into a theatre, you're going to have to make it much, much taller. Um, but it's not just the kind of the area, it's not the floor space, it's also the height of the space as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, so we'll, we, we will advise about what will actually make it work as a theatre. Claire mentioned un underground theatres, which is, a, you know, a bit of a trend, certainly in London, again, where developers, you know, they want to keep the prime ground floor space for shops, retail, whatever, uh, and maybe above ground floor for hotel. Um, and so they want the th the, to put the theatre underground. Um, not an issue in and of itself, but yet it is an issue if they want it to go four stories underground, which mm -hmm. there have been cases of that, which we've successfully overturned, mm -hmm. um, and where they won't allow the theatre to have any frontage on the street or any foyer. Where they've not thought about getting... They just kind of think, well, it's fine. They can just go through the public lift um, at the front of house and they haven't really thought about how this theatre is going to operate. Okay. And acoustics, mm. see, the other so, big one. Yeah, so. I mean, obviously we understand how theatres work and we know what they need to, to work, both practically but also economically as well. Um, a recent example, well, not that recent, but a, a good example uh, is in Streatham. So we were really involved with uh, the new Streatham Space Project, which is fantastic 
120-seat theatre um, that was built to replace the former Gaumont Cinema Theatre. Uh, so that was a section 106 where they, the local authority said, well, if you're going to knock down the Gaumont, we want a replacement facility. Um, and so uh, what the, the developer proposed was really inadequate, and we and the local community both agreed. And so through planning, we objected to that plan um, and helped persuade the developer to put together a better proposal in terms of the space. Uh, but not just that, we also made sure that they worked with a theatre architect. Uh, often the developer will just want to work with their regular architect and they really do need the expertise of a theatre architect to understand what it, what it takes to make a good theatre. Um, we also got helped the local authority recruit the operator um, to get the right people to, to, to run the theatre. Um, and we helped with things like making sure the developer put aside enough budget to fit out the theatre mm-hmm. with equipment. Often the developer will just deliver you a shell um, and then it costs a lot of money to then fit the theatre out. So we try as much as we can to push hard for them to not just deliver a shell, but to deliver actually an equipped theatre that will, that will actually work. So yeah, we, get, we even talked about the lease as well and got them a peppercorn lease for 25 years. So we'll get involved in all those aspects of a new theatre to try and make sure that it is viable and it isn't going to fail. And I think even if there is a theatre operator there, I'm thinking about another London theatre, Theatre Peckham. So um, there was a, a, a new build development going on the space of Theatre Peckham and Theatre Peckham were having a new build theatre. But what the theatre operator thought they were getting and what the developer thought they were getting were two completely different things. So the developer had signed up to a, just a, a kind of shell and core fit out. So just give the kind of basic box of the theatre and, and put in a lift shaft. Whereas Theatre Peckham thought they were getting a fully fitted out theatre. And then suddenly, you know, we're there quite often as the intermediary, the the person in the middle who understands what the developer's saying and what the theatre needs, and then we get involved and we try and put the two together and make sure that the theatre operator gets the best outcome. So there we were able to push and make sure that the uh, developer actually did give them give Theatre Peckham a fully fitted out theatre um, and were able to get a theatre consultant involved uh, in the design to make sure that actually the space worked properly, efficiently and, and did everything that Theatre Peckham wanted it to. So, you know, there's lots of different ways that we can get involved and uh, people can come to us for help and advice. Presumably you don't recommend architects or do you have a, is there lists of theatre architects on the website and same for theatre consultants I guess you there's a conflict of interest if you do mm. but maybe there's a ratings of mm. well what we uh, do, do, do instead is we look at the theatre project that's being proposed and then we will give a list of other similar theatres that have been built so if it's an architect it will be a list of other kind of theatre architects who've been involved in similar projects so we never give the advice of one name and say go to this person we give a a kind of a list of Mm. of consultants who've been involved in similar size or similar scale projects and say have a chat to them but I would always say when you're working with a consultant if you're a theatre operator you've got to find someone you get on with these are long-term projects you're going to be working with someone for several years you know it could be five years plus Um, and you need to really kind of gel with them you need to match with them as well as much about their experience as as getting on with them as consultants. Theatre consultants are a really important part of the process because you know most theatre managers um only ever get to do one capital project in their career uh, and and so you're on a really t- tough learning curve steep learning curve and you can easily be not being too mean about architects and but you can sometimes 
get railroaded into doing things or agreeing to things that you don't really understand or don't really need mm. or want and not having have the kind of the, the 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 experience and the knowledge to hold out for what you really want and so the that's the consultant's job is to be your to argue your case as it were and to kind of translate what you want into the right speak to make sure that the architects and the engineers and all the other consultants actually deliver what you need as opposed to what they think would be an amazing project yeah which makes it even harder to if you're a young architect and you want to break into mm. you want to design theaters yeah really I, I think it can but same you know positions as well yeah mm. i mean you will everyone has to start somewhere and yeah. i think what you're always looking for is someone who's who's prepared to listen and has that same passion as you do and not somebody who's going to as john says enforce their ideas on it that they actually want to learn about yeah. theater and about design and have an interest and a passion and want to work with other experts on that so yeah there's lots of exciting new talent that's out there one question i was going to ask before was about gentrification mm. uh Obviously, the renovation or the building of a new theatre brings business mm -hmm. or in, encourages business businesses. But I feel like there's you raise the standard of a of an area, and by raising the standards, it's great. But you raise cost mm -hmm. as well and house prices, mm -hmm. uh, and I know that very well for some places in Manchester. So how is it possible that to avoid this or does it always happen, which mm. would be a shame. Mm. Uh, and I've, uh, there's one of the theatre stress conferences uh, earlier this year. Was it earlier this year or last year? I can't remember. Uh, probably, uh, October last year, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, where there were a few examples of uh, venues that were really fighting that gentrification mm. and really wanted to give jobs to the local people as well mm. and involve mm. everybody in the local area. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I wonder if, if this is inevitable mm. and what are the ways to avoid it or it, minimize it? It's a really good question. And, you know, there's a real, there's a paradox in us talking about all those case studies of theatres that are, that are generating extra revenue mm. for the local area because what we're actually describing is a form of gentrification, you, you could say. And I remember Grayson Perry famously said that artists are the stormtroopers of gentrification. So artists will move into a partic not particularly fashionable area and it becomes fashionable because all the artists are there, thinking of Margate, for instance, mm. but also parts of Greater Manchester and parts of Greater London and, and elsewhere. And then, of course, they then get priced out of the place that they made made sexy, that they made appealing to to move into. Um, and and I, I think the only way around it is for, um, uh, um, I suppose, what you call disruptors like cultural organisations uh, and sometimes local authorities to to intervene into the in, you know sort of kind of intervene into the market as it were by keeping rents down um and, and local authorities in fairness do do that you know they 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 often rent cultural spaces and theaters out at peppercorn rents to to operators and to artists so there are lots of examples where uh, local authorities are doing their best 
to try and kind of keep keep rents down so that creative people can stay in the area. I'm not talking about housing rents, of course. I'm talking about rents for spaces, which is a different market. Um, but of course, housing rents is another issue that I'm not quite sure how you address that. Um, but uh, um, I think it's really important that uh, theatres employ local people uh, as much as possible. Uh, I used to I used to work at Contact Theatre in Manchester. And we were really proud of the fact that the majority of our audience and our staff came from Moss Side and Rush Home. Um, and, you know, at, at the time, it was really the only theatre in Manchester doing that. A lot more theatres are doing that now, uh, which which is amazing. The Royal Exchange are fantastic now uh, in terms of their kind of community engagement and, 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 and recruiting people locally. So it's a tricky one because, yeah we you know we we want to shout about the value and impact of theatres but we recognize that that does make places more you know gentrified as you say yeah do you have any special answers claire i don't know <laughs> no i don't but i th- all i was going to add to that was that i think that theatres themselves do some great community work mm, and i think absolutely. they still they still recognise that they have an important place in their community mm. and whether that's through their the youth workshops that they run mm. or whether it's because they run a cafe once a week for a certain mm. sector of the community or whatever it might be, mm. put on, on rooms to rent out for special occasions at very, you know, at subsidised rates or, or whatever it may mm. be. I think theatres are still very, very mm. conscious of being part of their communities mm. and how important they are to their communities. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, apart from the commercial theatres, the tickets are massively subsidised. Some theatres like the Ark in Stockton and Battersea Arts Centre do pay what you can as a policy on their shows. And so there's no financial barrier because you can pay zero if you can't pay, afford to pay anything. I was talking to you, John, earlier about the Untold Orchestra, mm-hmm. who are a charity and want to open music to a wider audience, not... Uh, just people who can afford expensive tickets mm-hmm. and uh, they have a certain price cap for all their events and they try to promote orchestra music. Mm. It's a bit more pop music than uh, just full classical mm-hmm. music. But yeah, it's, it's quite important to make things affordable and all, all these organisations who try to be more inclusive with any social and cultural background or Mm. uh, yeah but I think it's I mean price is just one aspect of inclusion and access as well Um, culture the culture of the organisation really matters Mm. so you know if you live in a really multicultural area and all your staff are white that gives out a message Mm. that this is a place for white people Mm. and so you know things like that and that was one of my key takeaways from working at contact was that we wanted to make sure we like i said recruited people who represented the community that we were trying to attract into the building but also we we um we changed our definition of what theater could be so yes we put on plays but we also had um spoken word workshops Mm. and we would have um dj training sessions and all sorts of different things like that and we do stuff in the foyer and we made our foyer a kind of place you could hang out you didn't have to come a sh- come and buy a ticket for a show you might want to at some point but in our view if you came through the doors for whatever purpose um if, even if it was just to hang out with your mates that was then we were we were being an inclusive space 
I think it's a really important part of our work, actually, and especially when we're working with some of those theatres on our at-risk register. Quite often those people go, we, we want this to become a theatre again and we want to put on this play. And we talk to them more about talk to your local community, look at the demand and the need, involve them, think about the importance of this building to its place, think about all those fond memories people have, its social importance, its architectural importance, and what it can do for your community and what benefit and opportunities it has in in its place. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not just a theatre, no longer it's just about a place for a play, it's so, so much more than that. Mm. We're going to talk about the theatres at risk but before um there's an initiative you created recently well is uh, writing the green book oh yeah mm -hmm. uh which we mentioned the first time we spoke mm. uh can you can you talk a little bit more about it yeah what, absolutely. Why you created it, um, well? I, it would be unfair to say that we created it uh, okay. we were very very heavily involved in it but we were one of a large number of Of, of folk who were involved in it. Um, I suppose we were quite closely attached to it because uh, an ex-trustee of ours, um, Paddy Dillon, um, uh, it was his idea, really, and it came out came about during lockdown. There were, you know, everyone was out of work, uh, certainly people who were in the performing arts side of things, uh, or furloughed, and so there were loads and loads of online conversations about all sorts of things, but primarily around... Here are the issues around theatre, whether it's around inclusion and access or whether it's around working unsustainably. Um, and so there were loads of brilliant conversations about when we do go back, we need to do things differently. And that includes working in a more environmentally sustainable way. Uh, particularly production can be very, very wasteful. Um, uh, you know, sets are built and then trashed and never used again. Um, uh, so uh, um, during lockdown and beyond, Paddy and I and partners at ABTT and Salt UK Theatre, um, we interviewed and ha held forums with about 400 people uh, involved in every aspect of theatre. So front of house managers, building managers, catering managers, produ produ producers, uh, stage designers, uh, lighting designers, production managers, pretty much every single kind of role you can think of to, uh, to essentially crowdsource what would be best practice in terms of doing things differently so we could make our productions more sustainable, our buildings more sustainable, and also the operation of those buildings, so like the bars and the catering and all that kind of thing. But we wanted it to be realistic and legible to to someone who wasn't a sustainability expert but we also wanted to make sure that it was properly um scientifically founded so we got uh bureau hapold who are an engineering company but with a big sustainability department to do all the kind of sense checking uh, because one of the hardest thing things around working more environmentally in a more environmentally friendly way is knowing where to spend your time and energy and money um you know you could spend a lot of time uh making an intervention that actually doesn't make a lot of difference carbon wise because it it sounds like it might but it actually it doesn't um uh and so we wanted the green book to really help guide people so after you know hundreds of meetings we came up with these three volumes buildings productions operations um the operations and the productions uh volume uh has three standards baseline intermediary and advanced to show that you don't have to be brilliant it's good to just get started and do something and so well over 200 theater companies 
not just buildings, but touring companies have signed up to, 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 to be on that journey. And the RSC and all the big national th- theatres, National Theatre in London and in Scotland and Wales, are all signed up to, 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 to at least achieve baseline and to hopefully progress to advanced in terms of sustainability. The buildings are slightly different because buildings are so idiosyncratic. You can't really have a baseline intermediate and advanced standard because... Uh, uh, you know, a, a Victorian theatre is going to be very different to a, to a mid 20th century uh, art centre uh, in terms of what it needs. So instead, what we came up with was an online tool called the Home Survey Tool. You put in data about your building, how old it is, how big it is, whether it's got a flat roof or a pitch roof, whether the windows are double glazed or triple glazed, and it will come up with a list of recommendations of things you should do. And it splits that list into quick wins, things you could do pretty easily and pretty quickly and at not too much cost. Maintenance, things you should think about putting into your annual maintenance program. And then capital, things that are bigger that you're probably going to have to raise funding for. And we, the reason why we did it that way was because we wanted to encourage theatre building operators to not to just think, oh, I can't do anything about sustainability until I get a capital project underway, because those happen once every 10 years, you know, if that sometimes. Um, but actually, there's a load of stuff you can do short of major capital works to make big improvements to your building. Yeah, I mean, it picks up on really small things like, you know, if you've got a, a drafty back of house door, put a curtain over it. You know, simple things like that can actually make quite a, a big uh, change to your building, you know, um, heating systems, people, you know, a lot of theatres, everything's on one control switch. You can't, you know, if the heating's on, it's on in the whole building. So it's on in the auditorium, the front of house space, the back of house space. Whereas actually if you can zone that and you can do that kind of fairly simply and effectively, then that can have major impacts and very positive benefits. Have you got any numbers on, on this particular aspect? On zoning yeah. of buildings? I don't have any mm. numbers, no, but we... In terms of number of theatres who could benefit, or the no, no. What are the um, the save or not the not savings, savings, but the um, the sustainability saving sustainability aspect mm. of it? I'm I'm thinking about that because I'm thinking about my house. Ah, yeah. and, <laughs> well, um, we did do a little bit of research uh, on um, just recently on what would happen if you invested um, between 50,000 and 300,000 pounds in in half of all the theatres in England. Um, And we worked out it would save something like six million pounds a year in energy costs across those those theatres. And uh, the money it would cost to do those interventions, which would be about 50 million mm-hmm. uh, in total, once you add it all up, uh, would be paid back in about, well, it depends on energy prices and where they go, but mm-hmm. roughly speaking between nine, 10 and 15 years, something like that. So it, it makes sense to to put money into into those kinds of improvements. Yeah. What's your opinion? Uh, I'm asking Claire because she's the architect. And <laughs> was, what's your opinion on making a building... The, the construction of a building sustainable and reducing or having a net zero construction figure or having a trade-off and having a slightly higher embodied carbon aspect but making your building very much more sustainable in operation when you operate it. Uh, Obviously, there's timber buildings, timber construction that is Mm -hmm. pretty uh, coming really quickly and has a lot of success. But and 
I'm not saying I'm for timber or for more concrete, but what's is there something that I'd, I'd try, I'm trying to have a more objective view on the use of those materials, mm. and also does the operation of a place completely offset the embodied carbon aspect of the construction? I think it's a it's a really interesting debate at the moment, um, and especially when you look at that kind of the retrofit and. Um, a kind of whole debate around retrofit of buildings. So, you know, the most sustainable building is one that we already have and reuse of those buildings because as soon as you start looking at the embodied carbon costs and the demolition um, and the carbon costs involved in all of that, then the payback period is over 50 plus years generally in terms of what you will get back in the operational benefits. And, you know, buildings are, are... tend to be built for a lifespan of around you know 50 years um that's what you do when you kind of put a design life on a building i mean obviously mm-hmm. they tend to last longer than that but yeah. you know you you'll have to replace flat roofs or you'll have to replace doors windows you'll have to refit and refurbish an auditorium or whatever within that time frame so there are always kind of ongoing costs so i think wherever possible we should always be looking at that retrofit solution um, and looking at the building stock that we've got and using that effectively um, and efficiently. And it doesn't mean that we can't build in sustainable measures into that and we can be clever in the way that we do that. Do you know if it's... Well, probably, yes. Um, is it always more cost-effective to retrofit a building than building a new one? Unless you... there's In a lot of theatres, you have to completely redo the structure mm-hmm. because mm. it's, it's falling down... It's not structurally safe. Yeah, you know, that it, again, it's another really interesting question. So if we look at the costs of some of those um, more recent buildings which have been um, restored and reopened, such as Stockton Globe or uh, Walthamstow, Soho Theatre up in Walthamstow, um, the cost of there has been about 25, 30 million. And what you've got over, you've got a thousand seat comedy venue up in Walthamstow with community space and the most beautiful um, refurbished and and restored kind of uh, interior decoration there and Stockton Globe as well again beautiful refurbishment there um, and a very large venue and then you look at the cost of if you were building new what that would be yes it might give you absolutely everything you want in terms of the perfect size stage and everything else but the cost is going to be more Mm. so some of our older buildings have a bit of compromise built into them but and there will be bumps along the way we i mean that's always the problem with when you're looking at historic buildings you never quite know what you're going to find you know you'll you'll go in there and you'll suddenly find the foundations aren't quite what you thought they were going to be or you know there'll be um, a problem with asbestos somewhere in the building and there'll be those hidden costs so they're always complex schemes they're great to work on because there's always a new surprise every day Um, so they're always keep they're always interesting Um, building new is always seen as uh, an easier kind of win I guess but uh, it doesn't mean it's more cost effective interesting have you got anything to say about it No, I think Claire put it really well. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm in favour of of retrofitting existing spaces as far as you can. I don't think we would ever say don't build new spaces, mm. um, but I think the the automatic thought should be from those people who are in position of power to decide these things is okay. Can we can we make what we've got work better? Uh, uh, and if not, then we might think about building new. 
Um, and, you know, we do advise on new builds as well. Um, uh, um, and sometimes that's what's needed. You know, if a theatre really is at the end of its lifespan and, and you know, is, is irretrievably, you know, uh, uh, um, knackered or just not fit for purpose, um, uh, better to build a new one. But but we wouldn't say that lightly. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, there could be ways where you could use part of the existing building and adapt other areas of it. So, you know, I think we should be... We should all be thinking a little bit more creatively about how we use our buildings, you know. Mm. And theatre industry is great. Theatre yeah. industry is so creative. And, and, that, and that's the challenge, solution. whether it's a theatre building or any other kind of theatre building, mm. any other kind of building. Um, you know, fashions change, towns change their shape. What was the centre is no longer the centre. Mm. Uh, and so you have to think about all those things, you know. And so there are some theatres in really appalling positions. You know, they're not really at the centre of the town. They, they're now on the edge, um, and so they don't get much kind of footfall, and that has a real impact on their viability. So all of those are factors. And, and you know, and the changes in fashions in terms of, you know, everyone said cinema was going to be the death of theatre, and everyone said Teddy was going to be the death of cinema. And yes, there have been peaks and troughs in terms of theatre and cinema and music hall and you name it. So we have to be flexible whilst retaining the best of what we've got and, 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 and getting the best of what we've got to adapt to, to new things you know most West End theatres have had to, to reconstruct their stages to make them able to take heavier set and equipment mm. you know um, uh, but but it can be done yeah and you know most uh, theatres at the moment are looking for bigger front of house spaces mm. yeah. you see what's happened over at Theatre Hall Drury Lane where they've put in or they've redone the front of house spaces with a massive um, refurbishment there which has been spectacular but they've also um reuse that kind of the existing corridor space between mm. them and the building next door and reinvented it as a mm. as a cafe space brilliant and i think that's kind of i mean it's not entirely new uh, ever since the sort of mid 20th century when local authorities were proudly building civic spaces civic theater spaces that's kind of when we started to have theaters with more front of house space more ancillary space because there was a whole sense that it was a meeting place and a and a hub as well as being a performance space um and it's now vital for theatres, including subsidised theatres, to trade, to make money uh, through bars and, and cafes. And, you know, it's not very glamorous, but we talk a lot about that, about making sure you've got enough front house space so you can trade and make money and, 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 and uh, deal with, sadly, you know, decreasing funding. Uh, one example being Bristol Old Vic, beautiful old theatre um did a major major refurbishment what four four five mm, years ago maybe yes. something like that and uh i remember they spoke at one of our conferences and they had recently had a 50 percent cut from their local authority grant and so i asked them you know has this helped this, this development and they said yes rede redeveloping the front house areas creating more ancillary spaces has replaced the grant cut that we got and i'm not s suggesting that therefore local authorities should think about cutting cutting further uh because there's a, there's a limit to how much you can uh, 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 generate extra income but you know theaters have through necessity become much more commercial and much more you know back in the day theaters used you know that were subsidized used to get quite a high proportion more than 50 percent of their income was subsidy nowadays it's more likely to be about 30 percent it's really hard to get those venues financially viable mm -hmm. and you have to be really strong uh, you have to be a, a businessman mm. with a charitable mindsets uh, because yeah you have to do something for the community so mm -hmm. affordable but you also have to make money and pay your bills 
And yeah, it's a real trade-off, and it's a particularly tr- challenging one right now because of cost of living increases, wage increases, energy bills, um, and you know, it's not like the theatres can just go. Well, we'll just put our prices up, and we can pass that cost on because they're, you know, if we want to be inclusive and not put barriers in the way people. You know, taking part in what we, we've got to offer, we can't just put their prices up. 